0: Welcome to season two of the Good Conversation with Dr. John Gillibrand. It's great to welcome everybody to this latest episode in season two of the Good Conversation podcast. And the theme of this season is The Theologians, celebrating the work of a rich diversity of theologians from around the world. And therefore, we can welcome. Our guest today, uh, Professor Natalie Wig stevenson from the University of Toronto. It's a great pleasure to welcome you.
1: Thank you, John, thanks so much for having me today.
0: Before we carry on, a word about the Good Conversation podcast. The idea of the Good Conversation podcast is that church leaders, leaders in wider society, and indeed theologians, can ask and answer the most challenging questions So I have to ask you now, Natalie, this transatlantic challenging question. Are you ready for all of that? Are you ready to take part in the Good Conversation podcast?
1: I think so, yes. <laughs> I, at least I'm happy to do so. We'll see how I bear up. <laughs> I, I, I know a little
0: of your work, and I, I know that uh, you're an excellent person to take part in this particular series. So it's uh, very kind of you to agree to do this interview. Thank you very much indeed. How long have you been a professor? Oh, um,
1: since 2011. So this is a decade now.
0: And um, on the scale of uh, naught to 10, uh, between (laughs) not liking your job and loving your job, what score would you give it?
1: No, you know what? I'm actually very lucky. I really love my job. Um, Obviously, it always comes with frustrations too, but we have an amazing group of students at where I teach, and I have incredible colleagues. So I'd have to say, an 8.5 to a 9 um, and that would only be because it would be just like any scholar would say nice to have more time for research which always always is difficult to grasp but no I love my work
0: from what you were saying I thought you were going to say nine plus so it's oh. uh, it's good
1: it's good <laughs> some of my students will tell you I'm a, I'm a tough grader <laughs> excellent
0: excellent the world needs tough graders yes <laughs> Now, could you tell me a little bit of your backstory, uh, as much as you want to share with us? Um, I understand you were brought up in England.
1: I was, yes. I lived um, in Essex. I uh, came from South End-on-Sea, so my dad was raised in Great Wakering, and my mum was actually from South Africa. She had immigrated um, under apartheid. She she was classified as coloured under the apartheid system, so she moved to England when she was 11. And then we all moved to Canada when I was 11, um, to, the, to the greater Toronto area. And so I went away for grad school, um, but came back actually um, for my first job at Emanuel College, which I've, I've stuck around for, I really love it um, there. So yeah, that's the, I've lived in the UK, in Canada and in the US then.
0: Compare and contrast the UK, oh Canada and the US, just just briefly.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, well, you know, my husband and I moved, the, the year we got married in 2005, we were trying to figure out what to do with ourselves and so we moved actually to London for a year and it was so funny to me to feel how much like it was home again, which I hadn't... Um, yeah, I hadn't experienced that for a long time it's like when we uh when we move around um I'm always getting lost but for some reason in London a city I hardly knew I never got lost at all so there's um yeah, there's the you feel the history, I suppose in in the UK and especially in London, perhaps a little bit more so, at least for me than I do in Canada and the US. There's that's where my this is where my body knows how to how to be there. Um, I suppose that's the personal. You are asking in a more general sense. Obviously, the US is just big. <laughs> it's everything <Indeed. laughs> is big and loud and uh, and dramatic. And I felt nervous when I first went to live there, but then started to meet people who were just so sort of open to that bigness in beautiful ways, you know, really seeking to create incredible um, music, art ideas, uh, really pursuing excellence. And I'm, I'm, I found that really inspiring living there. Here, at least I can speak about Southern Ontario in Canada um, is a much more egalitarian society. And yet it comes with all its own history, historical issues that still manifest in the present. I think we're increasingly aware in Canada of the legacy of colonialism and the oppression of the indigenous people in our country. And so I think that's sort of the growing edge in Canada and probably the most exciting edge that we're facing in a way that I'm not sure the US and UK are. Similarly, um, we're not very good at it, but I have a lot of hope in the fact that we, um, we're beginning to articulate those issues in a way that I perhaps don't see in the other two countries.
0: I understand you have family connections in Swansea, the, the home of the <laughs> Good Conversation podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah my uh, my dad's mum had been relocated to Swansea during the war, and um, so i I had um, an uncle there and uh, and an aunt, I guess, a great uncle and a great aunt and some cousins second, third. I'm not quite sure <laughs> what they were, um, really, when you map it out, but after we left the UK, we lost touch with them. <laughs> and obviously, uh, the older generation has deceased. but I did get to spend some time there as a child.
0: And that brings me just conveniently to a a brief uh, question. Uh, Talk to me a little about bilingualism in Canada, because obviously that's very relevant here in Wales, where we uh, speak both Welsh and uh, and, uh, English. Uh, Could you speak a little bit about the diversity represented by bilingualism in Canada?
1: yes well it's a i mean obviously it's a legacy of the settling of canada and um, the sort of disputes in that between the anglo and the francophone uh people we have sort of our now there's the two formal um national languages and those um you know everything's printed in french and english but the use of um French and English sort of in communities is much more regionally distributed, Um, you know, primarily in Quebec is where folks will speak French. Um, And then also in major cities, but especially in Ottawa and in the north of Ontario. I mean, I'm not I wouldn't have a good sense of how it's mapped, Um, but now we're having uh, beginning to see sort of a rise of the return of indigenous languages as well. Um, So we're sort of becoming again I don't want to overstate this by any stretch of the imagination but with the wiping out of so many um, Indigenous languages in the colonial process there's um, I think sort of similar to the resurgence of Welsh and Wales perhaps there's this reclaiming of these languages that were lost under, under English uh, oh, as an English person, I think I can say this English oppression. Um, And so, yeah, there's there's a a very strong reclaiming of identity and language and the importance of that culturally um, happening in Canada.
0: I'm an English person too, but fluent Welsh speaker as well. So I'm Incredible. I'm hearing I'm hearing <laughs> exactly what you're saying there.
1: Yes, well, and I I mean, I, as I mentioned, I spent some time in Wales as a child, and we were talking before the show of how I also lived on and off a little bit there for a year um, as an adult, and it was so beautiful as an adult to come and see how much the Welsh language had returned and um you know trying my best but failing to pronounce the street signs as we traveled around but really beautiful to see the language returning.
0: Great thank you very much indeed um now you're a Baptist minister yes you were you worship in an Anglican church yes And you teach at a uh, faculty uh, which has its roots within the United Church of Canada.
1: That is correct, yes. And we have a multi-religious body of students with programs also in Islam and Buddhism. So I'm internally as diverse as you can get religiously, I think.
0: (laughs) As an interviewer, I hardly know where to start. But let's, (laughs) let's, let's start with the Baptist minister. When did you first feel a calling to ministry in the Baptist uh, denomination, and can you describe that calling as it was then? As it was mm-hmm. then, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of personal history since then, but let's think about the
1: original calling. So I, I mean, the back the background goes even further that I was baptized. In saint george's united church in as a child um as a baby uh in this was out have been in south end or Westcliff, uh, in england um and then went to catholic school as a kid so it certainly had a very sort of mystically shaped theological imagination and then never really connect my family's not particularly religious so didn't really connect with the church much after that and so then had sort of the very Uh, typical evangelical conversion. When I was about 14, a friend took me to summer camp and everyone was really nice. And so I had my come to Jesus moment. And I don't don't say it like that to undermine it. It was a very powerful uh, moment in my own life. Um, And then I spent quite a few years as a charismatic evangelical um, all the way through university. Went away to divinity school. I went to Yale Divinity School and really discovered Um, feminist theology, queer theology, um, various kinds of critical race theory, and found all of that deeply liberating. Um, And for, you know, a number of years tried to sort of piece all of those pieces together that felt a bit fractured, but still knowing somehow all of that felt true. And then when I went and I began to feel the call at that time. So I was worshiping, you know, when you're an evangelical, you can sort of, in a sense, worship anywhere. It doesn't need to be an evangelical church. And so I had fallen in love with a Baptist church there um, in Hamden, uh, Hamden, Connecticut, and kind of began to identify as a Baptist. And, but all this time I'd been feeling a call. You know, when I was an evangelical, I was a part of a church that didn't ordain women or have women in leadership. And as a convert, that didn't make sense to me. I, I, I was a woman who felt called by God. Um, I knew I, I knew I wanted to give testimony at least, um, which is a form of preaching. Just called by a different name, so women can do it. And so um, I would say repeatedly to our our youth ministers, you know, I'm feeling called to this form of ministry. I'm feeling called to that form of ministry, and would just always be, you know, discouraged. Would be in settings where somebody could. Um, be called into some form of ministry and it would always be sort of offered to the boys and I would feel like I was sort of sitting at the side saying but no but I'm feeling called I'm feeling called so when I um, I was discerning for a few years around that and then um, my husband and I moved to Nashville Tennessee for me to do my doctorate at Vanderbilt and at that point I just knew I was feeling called to to ordination Um, and so what does that feel like For me, that felt like a widening of vision out from my baptism. It felt like um, a call to preach, which is definitely the case in Baptist churches. Um, It felt like a call to a a wider way of encountering God in the world and drawing other people into that space. Um, So these are not Baptist ways I'm talking (laughs) about ordination? Certainly not. I mean, I had gotten in trouble when I got, uh, you know, baptized at the evangelical church for trying to say, I thought that something, uh, you know, spiritual, ontological had happened. And I was told, no, no, it really didn't. And so I was walking into ordination with a similar set of, uh, you know, openness and presuppositions. And so my husband and I were looking for a Baptist church. He was already ordained as a Baptist minister at that point. He's now an Anglican priest. And we ended up just feeling like the place where we needed to be was this Southern Baptist downtown congregation, very middle class, very wealthy, not a kind of church i had ever worshipped in before. Uh, And so when we went there, we said, you know, I'm really feeling a call to ordination. And my understanding is Southern Baptists don't ordain women. Um, but the way the Baptist church works is local congregations can do that if they want to, it's just the convention doesn't. And this church was uh, so old and so established and couldn't really get kicked out that they did ordain uh, women. And so they said, no, they're open to that. um, If that's the call I'm feeling. And I discerned with them for about a, about a year in intentional discernment. And yeah, then I was ordained there. The story of that is in my first book. Um, we, the the ethno, ethnographic work I've done in my research was all done in that church, trying to figure out what it is to belong in a place where you don't quite fit. And yet knowing I've been, call, I've been called to be there. Thank you. Yeah. And you, it's all still true. It's, I still feel all of that. I still love that congregation deeply, even though it would be very difficult for me to be a part of it again now.
0: You, you have religious diversity written into your uh, <laughs> life story
1: well that's god isn't it indeed (laughs) between yourself and
0: and your husband yes Um, yes yes um i do you still have a preaching ministry at the moment
1: i do um you know not as often as i would like to but i do preach in our campus chapel um which i love doing i'll occasionally preach at uh, local churches um but yeah not as much as i want to preaching i love preaching that, Love it.
0: That brings me to my next question, <laughs> um, which is a challenging question. I've already been asking some challenging questions, <laughs> I do believe. I hope so, because this is the Good Conversation podcast. It's a
1: good conversation. I at least am very much enjoying our good conversation right now. <laughs> Thank
0: you very much indeed. Um, but a challenging question, apart from your own sermons, I might come back to those in a moment. What's the best sermon you've ever heard? Uh, but there's uh, a mo- even more difficult question behind that what's the worst sermon even even the one that might have made you uh, think about uh, making yourself elsewhere
1: oh what a great question um best sermon i mean i'm i'm not going to say anything my husband has preached even though he is uh, my favorite He's a really good preacher. It's not just, uh, it's not just wifely pride. <laughs> yeah. really, He's a really wonderful preacher. But when I think of um, dramatic sermons that have captured my imagination outside of, outside of his preaching. One would be um, the, year, the, an- the one-year anniversary of September 11th. And uh, David Bartlett, who would be my preaching teacher at, um, at, during Divinity School, he was a Baptist. Um, he passed away a couple of years ago he had he had broken his leg he he was um he was in a cast or crutches and so he couldn't stand to preach he was an incredibly tall man with a booming voice and one of the best preachers you could ever imagine to encounter he was a he, he had studied new testament and then was teaching preaching and was adamant on the exegetical foundations of preaching which i have completely absorbed from him and i i can't tell you what he said but he sat to say it on a stool, which made him about the height of you know, me. And this powerful man on the one year anniversary of a horrific event was seated to preach. And I don't know, something about that image just transformed the act of preaching for me in my, in my theological imagination. It was, it was humble and powerful at the same time, which is what I think preaching should be. And so I would say that was a formative moment in my own, sense of what preaching is and how it should be done um so get I mean most of my most transformative moments in pre- in hearing sermons I probably wouldn't be able to tell you what the preacher had said which would probably horrify the preachers themselves I've had but the that deli- would be-
0: I've had the delightful experience today of um a friend of mine on social media who remembers me from uh, 30 years ago as a, a curate up in uh, Carnarvon actually remembering what I said in a sermon <laughs> wow <Yeah.
1: laughs> It's always funny when it comes back to you, for sure. Yes. Uh, worst sermons, I'll say I'll say this. I, I mean, it would be very, I'd, I think I could say a number of things that are obvious, you know, when something's come out as deeply sexist, homophobic, racist, those would be the ones that would push me to walk out. But the kinds of sermons that I completely disagree with, and yet they are so masterfully created. They're bad sermons to my opinions, my own opinions, um, but, but I love them. They're one of my favorite kinds of sermons because they draw my engagement as a parishioner in such an intense way. You know, if someone's telling me something I really disagree with, but they're telling it to me so well, it gives me something to grapple with. And so those I would say are the kinds of sermons I really love, even though they might tend to make me very angry in the pew, but those are the ones that will stay with me and keep going because they'll give me sort of the best version of the, of the theological view I, I would want to avoid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> indeed. I, I know that feeling very, yes. <laughs> well. very well, indeed.
1: Yeah. Now that's kind
0: of brings me on to the next question. Um, the study of scripture, obviously, um, Uh, integral to your work, both as an academic and as a a, a minister of religion. Um, And I'm thinking now, perhaps, of the ways in which scripture um, is used in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, uh, thinking about the interpretation of uh, scripture how would you describe your own ways of interpreting scripture but also how are we to respond to more evangelical methods of interpretation? Um, Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Well first I think we need to acknowledge that the evangelical ways of interpreting scripture are so diverse and I think my own way of interpreting scripture which any conservative evangelical would probably be, they would be horrified by what I made of it (laughs) potentially, and yet would have shaped the way I do it profoundly. So, um, you know, we sort of know the, the fundamentalist read it incredibly literally approach to reading scripture that you would see among certain forms of evangelicalism. And yet there are these other forms of evangelicalism that I think take seriously the way we need to immerse our lives in scripture, that scripture becomes the spirit that we walk through, that scripture, the language I would use, becomes through our continual living in and through it, it becomes sort of a script that gets written into our bodily ways of being in the world that we then live, we perform it. It's how we move through the world. It shapes our imagination, our thoughts, our hearts, our very bodies. I think that's actually a very evangelical way of interpreting scripture, in interesting ways it's also very feminist and a queer way of reading scripture um, and I think the power in all of these hermeneutic models is um, is the living text of it um, and so when I when I preach that's what I'm looking for I think deep grappling with the text where we try to stay authentic to speaking and living it new uh, that's how I would interpret it so when I'm preaching I've you know do the historical work try to figure out the original context and then i try to live in the scripture and pray with it um and then sort of wrestle this new word out of it but what i don't think i'm ever trying to do is hold it as this distinct text that i'm bringing some kind of external interpretive lens to it i always picture myself kind of you know moving through it letting the word of god um sort of wrap me up (laughs) it's what surrounds me as i'm preaching and I don't know if that makes sense but somehow in that i see us living through scripture that's the interpretive mode which requires immersion in it so that it becomes a part of us and when i'm preaching that's what i'm preaching from um, whatever it is i've managed to wrestle out of that spiritual practice that spiritual process
0: you've mentioned what you describe as the fundamentalist interpretation of scripture if somebody is interpreting scripture in that way is there any way of dissuading them or opening them up to other ways of interpretation, or do we simply do we simply accept the diversity of hermeneutics?
1: Oh, what a great question! I mean, as a former fundamentalist, I have to say yes. It is possible to have your scriptural imagination changed. Um, you know, I think that there are, there are. But there are forms of fundamentalism that end in sort of horrifically, again, primarily sexist, racist, and homophobic forms of interpretation. There are kinds of fundamentalist interpretation, though, I think, that create really potentially ethical possibilities. Scripture will tell someone to feed the poor, and they will interpret that incredibly literally rather than doing what I think a lot of people in my communities do, which is, translate the heck out of that so that we're not caring for the poor the widows the orphans etc. In a, in, a,
0: in a way you can't dodge a biblical verse
1: in that <laughs> no if you're <laughs> fundamental, you got to take it as it is you know and so yeah hermeneutical diversity i think really matters i think um but but getting inside you know getting again getting inside that process with someone why are they taking even a literal interpretation can go any number of directions and which verses you look at matter. So someone can interpret the prophets literally and still end up with ethical behavior, kindness, love, generosity. Um, you know, when I was a fundamentalist, those were, those were the things that were shaping the way I behaved in the world. I could definitely be a bit of a closed-minded jerk at times, but there was also, so can I now. As a liberal progressive, so that's more about disposition, I think, than hermeneutics. You've
0: you've just mentioned the existence of racism, sexism, homophobia. Uh, we'd add to that ableism within the church, and we could say that that is deeply embedded within the institution in all kinds of Christian denominations, what would you say to somebody who categorically rejects those things, sees them within the institutional church, and as a result of that wants nothing to do with any institutional form of Christianity? Uh, how can we speak well of a church like that? And I say that as somebody with uh, 30 years service as an Anglican priest. Um, but I want to ask that challenging question.
1: Yeah, that is something I I, I really grieve. Um, I think I'm not sure there is something to say, John. I think that the first thing before we can say anything is repentance, asking for forgiveness um, being in loving partnership and friendship with people who have felt rejected by the church with no ulterior motives to, to draw them in. Um, but this is one of the things I really value about, uh, maintaining my ordination as a Baptist, um, because as you can imagine, I've wanted to leave that very often, especially in the past year with some of the things that have come out of Baptist churches. Um, But I've had these moments where people who have been deeply rejected by Baptist traditions can't quite put their head around um, how I'm a Baptist minister. And I hang on to that, not because I want people to feel better about Baptists, but because I want to have this physical presence to one moment of healing to people who have been hurt by Baptists. Um, And and again, that's not because I want them to think, oh, Baptists aren't as bad as I think they are. We are as bad as they think we are. Um, But but I've had these moments where a really, the one that's coming to my mind is when I led a communion service um, during the festival of homiletics at first Baptist where I was ordained, I participated in leading and afterwards a man came up to me um, to say he had been raised Baptist and had been rejected after he came out and, um, and he was crying. And he said, never did I think I would see a woman in, uh, at the front of the room in a Baptist church Um and I hadn't done anything. Uh, in fact, I'd been so nervous that I'd completely flubbed up the prayers and there's like way more people than I'd ever spoken in front of before because it was
0: I've been I've, been I've been there yeah, I've been that. there too. Not in a Baptist <laughs> context, but uh, in other contexts.
1: And I thought just the quieter I am right now, like it's a very strange thing to have just it, it felt profoundly like grace. There was absolutely nothing I was doing, but just by standing there, this healing was brought to this person by seeing the juxtaposition of what they thought Baptist was. And he was, he was a, I think a Methodist minister. No, he wouldn't have been Methodist either, probably Episcopal, Um, encountering what they thought Baptist was with what they thought um, acceptance and love was. And the, the misconnect of those really was what brought a moment of healing. And I, and I experienced that with my students, um, you know, at a manual where I teach that, you know, I teach queer theology classes and I have uh, queer students who have, who have, you know, converted to another religion because they got pushed out of their, the religion they were brought up with, with Christianity. And I have no desire to pull them back into Christianity, but the fact that I can be a loving presence, um, you know, I'm trying to say this without, because it's, again, it's nothing, nothing that I do, but to be a loving presence to people who have felt rejected feels like there's not much more than that, that I can do to have those, those dissonant moments that, that people don't expect from a Christian. um, I think that's the best we can hope for right now, given our just embroilment in some of the worst things that have happened in this world.
0: Yes, it's a ministry to hurting people, isn't it? In in many cases, I'd, it's something I'd very much identify with.
1: Well, and I think it's also a, a ministry to to self. You know, I felt, like I said before, I felt so called to ministry and for years was either ignored or told that that was told explicitly that was not for me or the way I was experiencing God was wrong. And so it couldn't be God. And, you know, that creates a certain hardened combative posture in a person and so I I need those moments of healing myself too and the softening that needs to come with that the softening that comes with the spirit's sort of love returning into someone
0: related to this really um I think from what you're saying to me that you would very definitely affirm your Christian faith. And that's oh, yes, what I'm yeah. hearing. Have there been points in your life where you could not affirm faith, would not have been able to say, I believe in God? And what does it mean to say that?
1: <laughs> I know that's the big question, isn't it? Um, yes. So I, <laughs> I've i actually written about this in in my recent book, and this is what what the book comes out of. I defended my dissertation. um, And the next day, the very next day I woke up and realized I, I didn't believe in God and I didn't know where that had come from. There'd be no moment in my life where I didn't believe in God. There was a vacuum, but also this very strong sense that this was happening around belief that I was not believing in God and that something in this was a, a need to, find something other than belief uh, to ground my faith in, right, this is, I, now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing how much this was a breaking of my uh, evangelical uh, formation, to be able to reclaim it anew, um, and so I, you know, I had friends say to me, read this, read that. Here's something that will help. Try this practice. And I ended up taking a sabbatical from church. I realized, no, I actually, I can't be searching for God right now. I have to let God search for me and and explore what it really means to say I've stopped believing. And for me, that meant the categories we use to understand God had broken. And I think my doctorate was incredibly doctrine heavy in a way that I had never encountered before um, in my own approach to thinking theologically, incredibly historically and doctrinally grounded, which if you know my, my work is something I, I once again love, but I had to come come back to it through it being broken and mended. Um, So it meant those categories weren't working anymore. And particularly the category of belief wasn't working for me anymore. I don't like the language of working because it sounds like theology is supposed to do a job for us, but it had broken for me and it no longer became a form of language through which I could encounter God. So I, yeah, I stepped back and I waited and I just tried to listen until God's voice began slowly and very quietly returning to me. And that's when I began to rediscover the the power of Christian language, of theological language, of of the saints and sinners of our tradition. Which you know, if we follow Luther, those are the same. <laughs> those are the same. Each one of them is a saint and a sinner. And really begin to claim the wisdom of the Christian traditions again, um, to sort of knit me back together. And I think what I needed it was almost like time travel. Uh, I had to sort of let the ground fall out from underneath me um by ground I mean those traditions and then weave back into those traditions somehow sort of the these other paradigms that have become equally important to me like like uh, feminist approaches queer approaches decolonial approaches uh disability theology all those pieces that didn't seem to fit. I needed to find a way for their misfit to at least uh, open space to re-encounter the divine.
0: And just a, a final question, really, in this section. In this uh, section. Before, <laughs> before, before we go on to the quick fire
1: questions. Oh dear.
0: <laughs> if you've listened to some of my previous have, interviews, have, you I know do. what you know what's coming yeah. <laughs> next.
1: <laughs> but starting to, make, my heart is beating uh, faster.
0: <laughs> uh, Reflecting now on the relationship between academic theology and institutional churches, and you've named a range of theological approaches uh, with which I have the greatest sympathy, that these are theological approaches that I myself would affirm. I've also worked as a priest, as I say, for over 30 years. How does one take those theological approaches into the institutional church and into um, the daily functioning mm. of um, in my tradition a parish church or a, a local congregation, how does one make that connection or, is the, or are, are we fated uh, that there will always be this opposition between mm. the life of the local congregation and academic theology?
1: Yeah, I I don't think that we will always have some divide between them because I don't think they're divided to begin with. Um, and so when I did my ethnographic fieldwork in the Baptist congregation, what I was looking for was were the places where sort of the history I tend, I I actually don't when we say academic theology, I have to ask, well, what do we mean when we say that? You know, there's historic systematic theologies, there's practical theologies, pastoral theologies. These are all theology. As a trained systematic constructive theologian, for me, that the historical doctrinal approach to theology is really, really important. That's what I'm interested in 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 working within everyday life, um, in my own, you know, pastoral ministry with people, if I'm teaching or preaching in a church, you know, that's what's really significant to me. So in my ethnographic work, I began to find that that history animated people's intuitions, their theological emotions. Um, what they thought but what they thought and believed in very internally conflicting ways and I don't think there's a problem with that (laughs) that's something that some academic theologians want to mend but we have this breadth of traditions that have internal diversity it makes sense to me that people who haven't you know trained in a specialized way and you know really gotten into the fairly unnecessary unless you find it interesting nitty-gritty of of categorizing and systematizing and pulling apart all those traditions they just they embody them it shapes the way of moving through the world and So that's already at play in their life. And what's interesting to me in that field work I did was going in and trying to then use these traditions to say, okay, well, if you believe this or you feel this or this is your intuition, here's a set of questions around it that you can ask. Here's here's why those different feelings are butting up against each other and causing strife for you. Um, Here's how you're bringing together in your life two theological concepts that don't actually work together. Um, And that's okay too, because we can create something again out of the way they don't work together. So I think there are those places where at a subterranean level, what we might call academic theology and sort of the theology in churches, the theology in people's everyday lives, they're all already deeply, deeply connected. Now, how do I think we can bridge or nurture better that overlap that's already there think it only happens at the relational level. You know, As academic theologians, we can try to write books and occasionally someone has a breakthrough one. But if you're writing academic books, I think by and large, they're not written. <laughs> they're written for a scholarly conversation, which again, is a very important conversation that I enjoy participating in. But we need to make a significant break from that if we're going to try to be writing books for people whose forms of wisdom Everyday Christian wisdom are different than academic ones, um, and I, I, I value both immensely, and therefore I'm very interested in listening to what people who don't have that formalized training believe and feel and experience about God. Um, but I think it it happens at that relational level. It's it's loving people who. Um, think and experience God differently than I do and not judging or trying to fix what they think, which is what that's sort of the language I all too often hear coming from academic theologians, which I find very, very troublesome and bothersome, especially given how shaky a lot of our faith (laughs) faiths are. (laughs) When you go to the academy, everyone knows it kind of breaks you a little bit first. And if you're lucky, you piece back together. But why would that be what we want to import to churches? I'd much rather be you know, present with people and, and hearing. Now, of course that doesn't mean that people don't, you know, drive me bananas sometimes when we're having those conversations and I don't have strong impulses to try to change what they think. I'm still human myself, but
0: I I know the feeling, feeling. You're, listening, <laughs> you're listening to somebody and you go, you said what? No, <laughs> what?
1: what? Are you kidding
0: me? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but then there were those moments where you truly love someone when they say that you said what moment. You know I've had people like this in my life where I think okay why why are they saying that and then we have a genuine conversation about it and we can disagree but there's there's often good in those those statements as well that I that I am always very curious to hear.
0: Uh, so what's your favorite food?
1: Oh my goodness. I just love so many foods. So <laughs> like you've already destabilized me. Um, I, we've just discovered a new Thai restaurant in our neighborhood that delivers. And so right now I'm mildly obsessed with Thai. Um, but then I have these, like, uh, there are foods I love, like the kinds that nobody understands, like Marmite or liverwurst, or, you know, it's like you're either in that club or you're not. So right now I'm really into Thai and Marmite. <laughs> what
0: One particular Thai, um, Thai dish oh, that you sure. could recommend for the, um, for those like me who know very little?
1: Well, the basic would be Pad Thai. Um, you know, everyone, that's the starter dish for everybody. I love a good Massaman curry. Um, again, a really easy entry point. A mango salad, if, a spicy mango salad, if you're feeling a little bit more adventurous. Um, but, you know, the green curries, the red curries.
0: Chocolates or sweets? Chocolates that one was easy <laughs> wine wine or beer wine red or white
1: red but I love a good cocktail
0: now this next question you may need to translate um, from the Canadian situation to here <laughs> okay. what's your favorite tv program
1: um well, I used to have a, a tv blog so I'm Uh, Let me think. Okay. I mean, the classic would be Six Feet Under, but I'm not sure how well that holds up. It's been a few years. I'm currently, um, oh, Fleabag. Excuse me. No, Fleabag. And that gives you a UK option. I think Fleabag is one of the most brilliant shows I've ever seen. I have read the scripts. I've watched it twice. Great show. Thank you.
0: Uh, Favourite film?
1: I don't know if I have a favourite film. I'm a total Marvel Universe nerd. I know I'm supposed to say something smarter Excellent. and artier than that, but, you know, Black Panther all the way for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're there. Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs> a wonderful film. A wonderful film. Um, Favourite book, first of all, fiction.
1: Oh, you know, I, I tell my students that you, when you're doing your graduate degree, you have to be reading fiction if you want to keep your soul. Um, so let's see, um, in the, like, can I got to give like the past year, because there's so much fiction I love. Um, but when we first went into lockdown, I read A Gentleman in Moscow, which I found incredibly helpful under lockdown, um, Tolls, and oh, the Museum of Innocence I read under lockdown, um, Orhan Pamuk. Um See, I'm currently reading A Year of Rest and Relaxation, uh, which is a fascinating book. Um, Ian McEwan's Atonement had a pretty profound impact on my thinking on, about reality. Um, yeah, those. I'm realizing I'm saying almost all books by men. Um, but yeah, I think The Museum of Innocence is my favorite of the last year.
0: Thank you. It's one of the great things about doing the Good Conversation podcast is I'm getting lots of recommendations <laughs> for good <Yeah>. reads. <laughs> Some of, some of which definitely. I've already had. Yeah. Some of which I have already read and
1: some of which I haven't.
0: <laughs> a favorite non non-fiction book?
1: Uh, Marcella Altuis reads Indecent Theology is probably my favorite book because you could really read it a hundred times and never, never quite get it. But it's a very provocative theological book that I love.
0: Now, this is going to be... In this section, but a rather challenging question. Supposing you had the opportunity of speaking to Donald Trump,
1: and oh you could say,
0: and you could say a couple a couple of sentences to him, what would you say?
1: This is really funny because one of my daughters has this sort of. She's five and she really likes to imagine what she would say to Donald Trump if she met him, <laughs> and it, just, it oscillates between his anger at him and. Uh, wanting to ask him to be kind. I think the struggle, you know, I would have had a better answer for that three, four years ago when I still thought saying something to Donald Trump could make a difference. I think at this point we know that it doesn't. Um, And so I'm torn between saying, please just be kinder. Um, And yeah, that's it. Please just be, or something like, you have been so hurt. I'm sorry for whatever has happened to make you be this way. I mean, the man is so pathological. I, I come out on, I think I've moved through anger um, into some sort of sympathy or concern, or I, I mean, what he's managed to do with his brokenness is, is horrific, but just something, something kind kind i guess yes. trying to beg him to be kind two which words i don't think it's possible
0: two words be kind be kind yeah. yes
1: yeah
0: now um before we uh, finish uh you've just got a new book out yes transgressive devotion theology as performance arts and it came out in february of uh, this year so yeah, it is yeah. absolutely brand new it's very uh, new <laughs> Can you can you tell me a little about the book? How long did it take you to write, and was it was it difficult to write? Or it was a-
1: so difficult to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, is any book not difficult to write? Um, well, the book, it I, I almost didn't realize this until very close to the end. But the book comes out of that story that I talked about of waking up the morning after my dissertation defense, no longer believing in God, and wanting to figure out how to piece together all these broken pieces um, and so it's it's a a journey of healing of um trying to walk really stay close to and walk through all the all the broken pieces to not shy away from them and so uh, all the things that scare me most about faith or feel hardest about faith, I try to explore those in a historically doctrinal way without coming to the answers that we typically would. So, I mean, this for your own work would be the the, the first and last chapters would probably relate most to your own work. Um, but those are the ones where I'm trying to grapple with disability theologies, which have been quite formative um, for me theologically. And this realization that I woke up, I felt like God had completely forgotten who I was. And the right answer to that was not God always remembers. I needed to sit with the agony of being forgotten. And so the first chapter of the book is trying to uh, reimagine a God whose power has been thoroughly uh, reshaped by his own diagnosis with dementia. And I'm not trying to claim that God has dementia. This is the way that the book works. At every stage, it's um, trying to grapple with something that's not necessarily true about god and yet can shape our sort of profound senses of loss in relation to god and really sit with them and see what comes out of it. So the theological anthropology at the end of the book is reimagining us as god's caregivers using pastoral disability theologies to Um, use strategies for people who live with dementia to imagine how we might relate to God. So rethink divine human agency as divine human attunement and listening and the possibility of what new structures of relationship that can come out of that. There's chapters in there using very indecent theologies where I'm trying to grapple with um, my own resistance to being uh, overcome by God, my own fear of God in prayer, and again, not wanting to take sort of the liberal tack that I had also learned in seminary of we don't have to be afraid of God. God is good. <laughs> God is love. It's like, actually, no, God's pretty terrifying. Um, and I don't want to lose that part of who God is either. And so trying to use queer and indecent theologies to grapple, um, you know, grapple with that in significant ways of what does it mean to try to be in relationship with a God who can overwhelm you. Um, and then, yeah, and then I'm I'm also working with um, ideas around Jesus and the way we sort of project idealized images of him and how we do the same with the church and how we need to live, live in those spaces of brokenness. So it's it's very strangely a systematic theology that is completely internally broken. <laughs> and that's where it sort of becomes performance art. I use a lot of classic performance artworks to try to frame sort of the affective, the emotional structures of these doctrines and the places within them that we, we uh, dare not tread. I just try to keep running through those those places where we dare not tread and and dance around in them for a bit
0: so it would be fair to say that theology isn't at all a question of having the best arguments it's something actually more profound than that isn't it
1: for me it is it's a a performative discourse exactly how i this grows out of my preaching exactly how i talked about preaching where we dwell inside um scripture and the word of God. And, and then here I'm extending that to the historical traditions, to the field work with the Baptists, to all the pieces that have contributed to how it is I, I walk God in the world, seek to incarnate God through my life. Um, it's like writing the script for that. And so I'm not trying to make an argument about God. I'm trying to help people who live in those in-between places to, to write their own scripts for performing God. And having God perform among us. I'm trying to write a theology that will lure God into participation in it so that we can encounter God through it.
0: So I'm not uh, receiving any uh, recompense for this but transgressive devotion theology is performance art available from all good bookshops in Canada <laughs> and the United Kingdom.
1: Let's <laughs> hope so yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we're almost out of time but can I just ask one quick question, looking to the future and thinking about the world in general and the Christian churches in general, uh, faith communities in general. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? How will things be in 20 years time?
1: Oh, I am, I am one who struggles to live in hope. How's that? I don't think I'm either an optimist or a pessimist.
0: That's a very quotable quote. (laughs)
1: I want to hope, and on my better days, I do. Yeah.
0: Anyway, it's been a great delight to interview someone one who struggles to live in hope uh, <laughs> today. So thank you ever so much for your time and for your uh, generous giving of your time to participate in the Good Conversation uh, podcast. And can I take the opportunity of wishing you and your family and all your colleagues all the very best for that future. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. This podcast was produced by Phil John with music by Dan Greensmith.